just go ahead and just take a moment and pray and invite our Lord with us. Father God, we, we simply want to come before you this morning. Um, God, we thank you, Lord, that we have the opportunity um, every day, Father God, to come to you, Father God, to thank you for the air that we breathe, Father God, to raise a hallelujah, Lord. Father, we just want to simply invite you here this morning uh, to meet with us, Father God. Lord, I pray that as we listen to four different stories, Lord, that God, each one of those stories would meet us where we are at, but God, take us to a place that we have never been before, Father God. And so, Lord, I pray that you are softening not only my heart this morning, but God, that you are softening every single person's heart here today. And for those who are listening online, we pray, Father God, that you would just be with them as well. And so, God, we lift up this service to you, God. God, I pray that you would remove the nerves, Lord, of coming back up here and having the opportunity to preach. God, we pray, Lord, that the message would be clear. And so, God, again, Lord, just as it's been echoed before, Lord, remove the distractions. And, Lord, we lift up this service to you now. And it's in Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. So last week, Pastor Mike started a series uh, on parables. And so we are going to be traveling through the summer, through the month of July with parables. And so I get the opportunity to bring up the second parable. And I love that Jesus was an amazing storyteller. And I didn't realize it kind of growing up, my dad was a storyteller. He always wanted to drive home a point by a story. And I always used to tell my dad, dad, come on, can you just get to the point? But he had to complete his story. And what I don't think I realized that even though at that time my dad didn't know the Lord, he was actually preparing me to hear stories from the Bible. Well, today we're going to hear four different stories. One, two of them are going to be from the Bible. One of them was inspired because of the Bible. And the other one is, is going to be heard live as a testimony here this morning. And so my prayer is that as we get through each one of these stories that maybe one of those will connect with you today. Now, here's one of the hardest parts. I'm going to prepare you. I may ask you to do something here this morning that may challenge you. And I don't know what that is yet. It may not be in those notes because, as you know me, I don't always follow my notes. They know in the back that I don't always follow the notes because I'm not even currently on my notes at this very moment. But what I will let you know is that the things that I do ask you is sometimes I have to challenge myself with it as well. And so as we're going into these stories, I hope that you are ready to go. And the first story comes from a book and it's an amazing book. And I can't, uh, I, I've been talking about it for probably the last few months. If you've been around me, I've probably shared a story from this book over and over and over again to anybody that I've been able to meet because of the impact that once I started going through it, I was like, man, God, why can't my faith be like that. And this story comes from a book called The Insanity of God by Nick Ripkin. And Nip Rick, Nip, Nick Ripkin was a missionary in Somalia for years. Now here's one of the hardest things though, is that when he was in Somalia and he was struggling to reach people for Jesus because it was a predominantly Muslim country, as he was going and, and as he was leading few people years down the road to Jesus, he would later hear, or maybe even that same week or that next day, that he would hear that those converts would be killed for their faith. 
And so Nick began to start struggling as a missionary. He started going to God and saying, God, why are you sending me to a place to lead people to you and then they're dying? How do I reconcile that in my life? How do I send people to their death by what I feel I'm being called to do? And so Nick would eventually leave Somali and Somaliland and he would go and travel around the world and he would begin to start talking, speaking to 600 believers, asking them to tell him a story of their faith. So 600 believers, 60 countries. And then he would begin to start listening to these stories and going, God, maybe this is what you are calling every single one who calls themselves a Christ follower to do. And so today's story, and today's story is going to talk a little bit about a person who served through humility. So there was this man named Dimitri who was born and raised in a believing household in the former USSR. And his family had been taking him to church regularly as a child. And over decades, communism slowly began to destroy most of the places, houses of worship in his area. And by the time Dimitri started to grow up, it, he said that in his, in, in his testimony, he says, it began to say where the nearest church building was a three-day walk away from his house. I want you to think about that for a second. He knew that it was a three-day walk. Why? Because he took a three-day walk to his house, to his, from his house to the church. And slowly, he said, it became nearly impossible with his family, and then they would maybe just go twice a year. And so one day, Dimitri told his wife, and he said, he goes, I know I have no religious training whatsoever, but I'm concerned that our sons are growing up without learning about Jesus. And so he began to do Bible studies with his family once a week. And his family began to enjoy these Bible studies, and they eventually asked, Papa, can we sing some of those songs that they sing when we go to the real church? So the natural progression of studying God's word and singing began to catch in this little village where Dimitri and his family lived. And so the neighbors began to ask, hey, we heard that there's this Bible study that you're doing in your house. Can we come? And Dimitri protested and he said, well, I'm not trained to do this and I'm not a minister. So slowly people began to start coming into his home. And finally, there was a group of 25 people in his house doing a Bible study and singing the songs that he would remember when he was growing up, when he was going to church. Well, soon enough, the authorities began to hear that he was starting a church. And so they came and they threatened him physically. And he told them that he had started an illegal church. And I wrote this response because, and I have to read it just verbatim because it's the most beautiful thing that I've ever heard. And he says to them, I am not a pastor. This is not a church building. We are just a group of family friends getting together. And all we are doing is reading and talking about the Bible, singing, praying, and sometimes sharing what money we do have to help out a poor neighbor. How do you call that a church? Let that sink in for a moment. 
and what his thought of what church was in that moment. Well, the author Nick Ripkin was reflecting all the stories he read, and he read after, he, after this quote, he goes, the strong, he started to recognize that the stronger the persecution, the more significant the spiritual vitality was of the believers. When the group began to grow to 50 people, the authorities made good on their promises, and Dimitri was fired from his job. His wife lost her job in a teaching position, His boys were expelled from school, but the group grew to 75 and then to 150 people. One of the nights, Dimitri, uh, the, the authorities came into the house and Dimitri was slapped around in front of the entire group, telling him to stop. And I love it. He says that this little old grandmother told the official, you have laid hands on the man of God. You will not survive. Two days later, that official died out of nowhere. The authorities had caught wind of that, and they arrested him and took him to prison. And as if that wasn't enough, the story gets even better. Dimitri's story continues now in a prison 621 miles away from his house. Dimitri was the only believer out of 1,500 hardened criminals in that prison. And there were two spiritual disciplines that that Dimitri brought in or learned from his father that he brought with him into prison. And I want to share these two disciplines. One, the first discipline was this. Every morning at daybreak, he would take a stand at attention by his bed and he would raise his arms to God and it began to sing what he referred to as his heart song. Now, in the book, it kind of goes in detail. The author says, hey, I asked him to sing his heart song, and it was in Russian, and so I don't know any Russian. But I started to think, well, what would my heart song be? And I started thinking, what is a song that I go to when I am going through some of the most difficult parts of my life? And there was a, there was a time that I remembered back when my daughter, my oldest daughter, was born, and she was in ICU. And I remember we were just sitting there, and she had a cracked skull and a cracked cl- a clavicle. And they, they thought that we were just sitting there for a week going, God, what is happening? And I just remember holding my precious little baby, and I would sing this song over and over and over again. And so I would say that my heart song And I'm not a singer, I just want to let you know this. But my heart song would probably be something like, I love you, Lord, and I lift my heart to worship you, oh, my soul. And he would do this every single day. As the prisoners would begin to hear him sing, He talks about that they would begin to laugh and curse at him, bang metal cups against the iron bars in angry protest. He says that they would even begin to start throwing human waste at his door to get him to stop singing his heart song. The second discipline that his father taught him was this. Whenever he found a piece of paper in the prison, he would sneak it back to his cell And right with sometimes when the prisoner would throw coal at it, he would use the coal 
to write on that whatever size piece of paper, he would begin to write scriptures from memory, stories from the Bible, songs that he could remember, and he would write it, and then he would place it up on this, he called it this damp pillar inside of his cell. And then as he would look at it, he would be reminded of why he was in prison, and he would remember that God was with him. Well, every time a guard would pass by his prison cell and they would see this piece of paper, he would step out into the cell, he would look at it, he would read it, and then what he would begin to do is then beat Dimitri until he would beat into submission and give up. And then he would walk out the room and toss the piece of paper away. But he continued to do this for the next 17 years. One day, the prison guards told him, your wife is dead, and your kids are going to become awarded to the state, and we're going to give them away. And Dimitri, after 17 years, was broken. He was done. And so what he decided to do was saying, okay, I give up. I will sign anything that you want me to as long as I get out of this jail. And they said, okay, what we are going to do is we are going to go ahead and write this contract up for you, and this is what we want you to say. We want you to say that you are no longer a believer in Jesus, and that you are a paid agent of the Western governments trying to destroy the USSR. That night, Dimitri began to just weep and be in anguish because he just realized that after 17 years of holding out, he was tired and he didn't want his kids to go to anybody else once he found that his, his wife was worried. And in his anguish, he's calling out to God. And I will tell you this because I love these stories and I do not know how it happens and I can't tell you that it will be replicated, but what I do know is that what happens next has to be of God. Because what happens next is this. As he is praying... 621 miles away, his family gets a heavy heart. And they begin to start praying for their husband, which means what? His wife is alive. For their dad and for their brother. Now here's something interesting. It says in the book that he heard, by somehow through the Holy Spirit, he heard his family praying for him. 620 miles away, no cell phones, only the Holy Spirit. And he hears this family praying and he recognizes that they are not dead. So Dimitri was overwhelmed by God's blessing. And so the next morning, as they came in with the contract to have him sign, he goes, I am not going to sign this contract. Well, what is he actually saying then in that moment? He's saying, I am willing to spend the next 17 years to follow you. And what do they do? As they go and they're going to take him now to execute him. And it says in the book that as they are walking through this gate into the area where the execution area was, It says that there was 1,500 hardened prisoners lifting. Gosh, guys, I got to stop writing this stuff. 
there's 1,500 prisoners with their hands raised in the air, lifting up his hard song. Seventeen years. And now all of these prisoners got what he was standing up for for those 17 years. Well, those guards were just afraid, and they released him before they took him to the execution area, and they asked him this question, who are you? And I love Dimitri's response. He says, I am a son of the living God, and Jesus is his name. Amen? You see, sometimes later, sometimes later, Demetri was released because they didn't want him to affect the prisoners anymore. And so they sent him home. My goodness, guys. When I hear stories like that, I get challenged. And I have some questions that I have been asking. And I want to ask you these questions. And I'm going to tell you, I don't know the answers to all of them. But I do want to ask those questions because we need to ask these questions. Because as we have an opportunity to maybe drive 15 minutes away from our house, maybe for some of you all the Altamont, you're going, Psh, I drive 30 minutes. Do you understand my hardship? <laughs> that we have to ask some of these questions as followers of Christ. And, and one of them is this. Do we love to hear about stories like Dimitri? Is that a pretty easy one? Yeah, I love hearing those stories, right? Would we want to be part of a movement that created a bunch of people, 125 people, to come into our home to sing and lead or to listen to Bible stories and to sing songs? That would be fantastic, right? That's, you're like, well, Chris, that's not a hard thing. Would we stop if the authorities began to say, you cannot meet anymore for fear of prison? Would we be willing to go to jail for 17 years simply because we say we believe in Jesus? Knowing that we would be beaten daily. Knowing that if we put scriptures up on a pillar, that they would tear it down as soon as they saw it. Knowing that the people around you hated you and that you were isolated, that you were one believer amongst 1,500 people who hated you. Would you still say that you're a believer. Another quote from the book says this. It says, persecution can be the fertilizer of where our faith can grow. Let me say that again. Persecution can be the fertilizer of where our faith can go. And I want to ask this question. How many times do we avoid persecution? You see, to serve in humility means that we must take the harder path than most. Which leads us to this next story. And this is where we go to God's word. And we're going to listen to this parable. And here's the greatest thing, because I know you're wondering, this is a long first illustration. <laughs> so I've chosen five scriptures. One parable from the book, from the gospel of Luke. And so if you have your Bibles, I want you to open up to Luke chapter 18. And we're going to read verses 9 through 14. And it's a story that maybe many of you are familiar with. It's called the story, it's the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. Matter of fact, I think I've actually preached from it here before, and I was like, psh, Mike's gone, I should probably do, no, no, I love this story. 
And as I read this story, I want to make sure that you understand that this story is a story of trying to understand that what is more important in our lives, is it who we are or whose we are? Who we are versus whose we are. And we're going to talk about that here in a second. But let me go ahead and just read the story to you. It says, to some who were confident of their own righteousness and looked down on everybody else, Jesus told this parable. He says, two men went up to the temple to pray, one of them a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. And the Pharisee stood up and prayed about himself. God, I thank you that I am not like other men. These robbers, these evildoers, these adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week and I give a tenth of all I get. So now you're sitting back and you're going, man, this guy sounds pretty good. But then he also then continues and he says, but then the tax collector, he stood at, the, at a distance and he would not even look up to heaven. But he beat his breast and he said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That's the only things that he prayed. And Jesus says this, I tell you that that man, that this man, rather than the other, went home justified before God. And then he concludes it and says that he, that he goes, uh, that, but forever, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. And so let's take an internal look at this parable really quick before we jump into our third story. You see that there's this battle that every Christ follower faces. And in that area that Luke is writing, he's writing or he's speaking to a group of Gentiles. And if you're wondering, what is a Gentile? You are a Gentile, according to the scriptures, unless you are a Jewish person. And you see in this parable, it's meant to point out some of the characteristics of a person who declares himself as more important of who they are and versus a person of whose they are. And so let's take a look at this Pharisee and maybe some of the things that he was identifying of who he was. You see, the first thing he focused on was uh, he focused on who they are not, or that he focused on uh, a person who, sorry, a person who is focused on who they are is focused on who they are not. So let's talk about that for a moment. You see, sometimes in our walks with God, that there are moments where we can kind of go, man, and, and it's okay, you don't have to raise your hand, but if this is you, just log it in here. But if you've ever used the phrase, man, I am so glad I am not like him. Or man, I'm glad that is not my story. Or sometimes you're focused on everything bit of like, man, I am glad I'm not in his situation. Or man, I'm glad, and you just kind of start putting places where it lifts you up that maybe you're focused on who you are. Because one of the things that he says is, I'm not like these other men, these robbers, these evildoers, these tax collectors. And basically he is identifying on who he wasn't. The second thing that you folk, the, the person who is more focused on who they are is status is more important than reality. You see, the one thing that he was doing is that he says he prayed about himself. And then he started telling people, again, you're coming to this temple to pray. And then all of a sudden he starts going to like this. He goes, hey, I, I tithe a tenth of everything that I get. 
And I fast twice a week, and I'm sitting there as I read the passages, and I'm going, man, those are all great spiritual qualities, great spiritual characteristics. But one of the things is, is that he's calling the attention of this is what he does, not why he does it. And he begins the third part, which is that he begins to elevate himself above others. And so he takes no internal assessment of who he is. And then the fourth part is that he doesn't go home. This is one of the hardest parts in the scripture, though, because in those moments that those who are more focused on who they are, Jesus says that they don't go home justified, meaning that his blood is not covered over them, that they are not forgiven because what they are doing is that they are more focused on their status versus who Jesus is. And now let's look at the characteristic of the tax collector. And in the, the, the characteristic of the tax collector is one, is that he has an understanding of who they really are. They have an understanding of who they really are. And so the tax collector acknowledged, basically he says, one, he knew who he was. A tax collector was a person, most commonly in biblical days, that they would come in with the Roman guards and says, hey, they need to pay their taxes. And guess what? I need a little bit for me. And then what would begin to happen as they're collecting all these taxes, he had also the authority to put people into prison. And as he had put the authority to put people in prison, if you made me angry saying, hey, you, you're going to jail. You, you're going to jail. You, you're all right. You're going to stay here. And what would happen is that he would begin to start creating this. But what he started to realize as he is going, remember, he is also going to the temple. He's going to the temple and praying. And he simply is finally recognizing, saying, God, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. Which brings us to our second characteristic in that, that they directed their brokenness to God and to others. It says that the tax collector couldn't even look up to heaven. And he does this thing where he beats his breast and he starts going like this. And in scripture and in biblical times, when you're doing this, it means that there is a sign of sorrow. There is a sign that there is a recognition that there is something inside of you that you know is not right. And as you start beating your breast, you're going, man, why did I do this? Why do I keep doing this? Why do I want to do this? And then his simple request is this, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Well, the third characteristic is this is that the status is given by God and not others. Let me say that again, that the status is given by God and not others. And the last one is this, is that that person, meaning the tax collector, goes home justified before God, meaning that when that tax collector went home, he went home as if he had no sin. I love that. I love that because as those, I'm not just saying this to you, I'm kind of saying it to me and I need you to understand that guess what, that we can walk home after today or we can drive home after today justified before God by simply acknowledging our own brokenness, by simply recognizing that we need to recognize whose we are is more important than who we are. 
Finally, in verse 14, Jesus wraps it up with this, and I just want to make sure that we fully understand as it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now, here's something interesting when I was looking at this verse. Both positions, there is a desire to be exalted. One, when we exalt ourselves, God goes, I don't see it. But God does exalt us should we actually recognize who is the person who is supposed to be doing the exalting. And it's not us. But here's one of the most beautiful parts. That when you hear a testimony, what somebody is saying is saying, this is where I was, but I am no longer there anymore. And this is who I am. And here's something amazing, church is that we have a testimony here this morning. I'm calling it an interview testimony because one of the things that I wanted to encourage him was is that he is not a speaker, but he does love the Lord. And as he comes up here and as he shares, my heart is that you are going to hear a I once was lost story, but now I am found. You see, we have to acknowledge our brokenness so that God can give us the freedom.